This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from my bedroom. Amy Knight. Oh, sorry, that was funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, Do we need to play some uh, music? You know. no, well, so I could see AJ's face on the video that made me laugh. Oh, there um, you go. Anyways, hey, hey from Nashville. And, and actually, it's the, my my office. I was going to say. <laughs> oh, no, you, you said bedroom. Everybody just imagine it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh, we also have... just slinked out on the bed here. Hey, there you go. Jeans on. <laughs> yeah, he's wearing short shorts. He shaved his legs. Anyway, uh, we also have Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, hey, it's the Vanilla JS guy from Boston. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm actually going to be starting a new show within the next few weeks as we record this called The DevRev. That's basically the developer revolution. And we're focused on helping you find freedom um, in your current job, in your next job, um, in your programming life outside of work, all of that good stuff. So anyway, keep an eye out for that. I'm going to be posting it to YouTube and Facebook Live as well. So anyway, I'm super excited about it. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Andy Bell. Hey, everyone. How are you doing? Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? I, I, yeah. I guess Chris knows all about you since you keep saying nice things about him. But <laughs> <laughs> I pay him handsomely. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a good rep. No, I, I'm an independent designer and developer based out in the UK. Yeah. Nice. Fucks on accessibility and progressive enhancement and stuff. So it's cool. Now you you wrote something about vanilla JS in this uh, blog post, and then you also made it sound like you might be able to do like React and Vue stuff for progressive enhancement. And I'm just foreshadowing a few things, but I think we better start with just what progressive enhancement is, since that's what we're talking about today. Um, so I suppose like the best way I describe progressive enhancement is you create a sort of staggered experience for a user. So you you create like the lowest possible tech solution and then enhance it as like browser support is enabled or assets arrive down the pipe and you, you sort of use the declarative nature of html css to uh you know work in your favor rather than work against it so i think that's probably a good way of describing how it works for sure now the example that i always heard and i think this is becoming less and less and less of a thing was essentially people would turn off JavaScript because it was a, a security concern. And then, so your progressive enhancement would basically make the page work without JavaScript. And then it would work with JavaScript. But it seems like there's more to it than that. And I don't know that that many p people are really running without JavaScript anymore. That's true. But the, the thing is as well, like progressive enhancement isn't just like a no JavaScript alternative to, to like an application or a website. It's... It's a, a way of like improving the experience. So, you know, like, say, for instance, you've got um, a contact form, and by default, it'll be inputs and a submit button. But mm -hmm. if, you, if JavaScript then arrives down the pipe, you can enhance that and, you know, turn it to something more conversational and then submit. But you could also be using some other JavaScript that does validation. So, as long as you, the initial JavaScript works without the other JavaScript that comes out of validation, then, you know, it's all good still. You're still progressively enhancing the experience. You just, you know, using dependencies wisely rather than just saying, yeah, it's all going to work because every connection is good, you know. So I, I do get a bit comfortable when people say it's, it's just a no JavaScript thing because I think it's very much a constant, you know, you enhance everything, every single part of the app, depending on, you know, what, what people's capabilities are using the site. Yeah, and your post made that pretty clear, I think. I mean, you, you did get the mention of, you know, it doesn't support these JavaScript features or they have JavaScript off. It doesn't support these CSS features or CSS off. So I guess my thinking then is, I mean, I don't even know where to start with this. It, you know, people, are people still using like IE6 or whatever? Because that was the bane 10 years ago, not IE6, you know, or how far, how far back or what kinds of gradations are we talking about here? 
Well, you could be going as far back as what the native HTML supports. If you go really hard at it and make it work without even CSS, you could support, you know, IE five if you if you're that way inclined. But like that, um, there's a little app that I made called My Browser, which which uh, does sort of feature detection for browsers and gives you that information about them. And that essentially will work back all the way to IE six if I could be bothered sorting the SSL out. Um, so it's it, because of the way it's built, you know, by default, it'll just load a sort of base style sheet and some HTML and off it goes. You know, it can do its job. So Andy, the pushback, because you know, I'm, I'm a pretty big advocate of uh, progressive enhancement and talk about it constantly. And the pushback I always seem to get, especially from these gosh darn youngins these days, is... <laughs> Around and I, you know, I'm being like I'm being, sarcastic. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic, but there does seem to be kind of a divide between folks who remember dial-up noises in AOL and people who grew up in the broadband era. The pushback I always get around stuff like this is even mobile phones have really smart, fast internet connections these days, and if someone is still browsing the web on IE nine, that's their friggin' problem, not mine. Like browsers are free just upgrade. So like from your perspective, Andy, are there kind of compelling reasons why progressive enhancement still matters? Even I guess, first of all, are those statements true? And if they are, there's still compelling reasons why progressive enhancement is important. So the first thing I'll say to people that say, oh yeah, browsers are free. They should update or they should use the latest browsers. They need to check the privilege because not everyone gets the ability to change the browsers. Uh, you know, they might be working on super lockdown systems. They might just have a really old computer, you know. The developing world, they ain't walking around with 3K MacBook Pros. They're, you know, rocking five-year-old laptops that haven't been updated since they rolled out of the shop. So people are running really old software. Um, people are running really slow, slow connections too, even in the sort of so-called developed world. You know, people are running like less than 10 meg connections. So you're... 500 kilobyte to megabyte bundle of JavaScript is, is going to be slow coming down for them people. So there's going to be real disruptive experience for them. And I think a lot of tech and a lot of, you know, talk about tech comes from the rich Western world where people are running on fiber connections and running expensive machines. So they, they've just got this idea of the web that it is fast, but I think generally it's actually really quite slow for a lot of people. So I want to play devil's advocate for just a second on one of your points. Cause I, my family lives out in the boonies. They have a very nice house, but they have satellite. So I am very familiar with, you know, even of people that are affluent, 50% of the American population doesn't have fast internet. But this point I, I hear get brought up a lot that you said, you know, people in the developing world don't have access to these browsers. I don't think those people are paying customers. I don't think that they're they're visiting these sites and, and turning into, pardon my French, but important users, key metric users. I think it depends on what you're doing. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think, um, you know, I see examples of... Um, sites that rendering article content just a an article that rely on front-end javascript to actually render even a word of content and you know those people anyone can read that content and it doesn't matter whether they're paying or not and you know those like people on those satellite connections whatever it's a cloudy day or if it's bad weather they're not even going to be able to read a basic article which should be rendered with html on the page really you know so yeah, that's probably the answer to that one. Uh, yeah, for sure, on like subscription apps and stuff like that, that's a valid point. But on probably the most case of the web, I don't think it is. I'm going to play devil's advocate to AJ's devil's advocate. So let's say I'm a paying customer. I subscribe to an online magazine. I read on my commute. Not that I have a commute because I work from home, which is an awesome gig. But assuming I had a commute, I'm on the train and all of a sudden it goes through a spotty connection area or a tunnel. And the HTML file is downloaded, the CSS is downloaded, but the JS hasn't or timed out midway through. In a non-progressive enhancement scenario, if the content is dependent on that JS, I get nothing in a progressively layered experience. I may not get all the flashes and features, but I can still get something, which is 
better than nothing. And in that case, AJ, I am a customer. I understand we're talking about two kind of different use cases here. Well, no, I, I think I think it's there's what what you're saying is that I might be in the target market and I might temporarily have a crappy connection. And if you develop for people that are not in the target market, you'll reach more of the target market as well. The, the whole idea of you know when you make something accessible, it's, it becomes more accessible for everyone, not just for the target group. Right, so I get that. You know, and depending on how much it costs, it could be a thing where I decide I'd rather buy your service than upgrade to a new fancy device every couple of years. And by having something that's a little bit more accessible, I can still take advantage of it, even though I can't afford a new machine. You know so, what I mean? I, so, and I, I do, but I'm going to call BS on the hypotheticals. And I want to hear if anybody's got a real example of where this mattered to them. Ooh. Let's see. And this is tough because I'm on like 100 megabits up, down, and I well, do have a nice new laptop. And my phone's like six years old. But A few years ago, I went down to Oklahoma for a family trip. And we were so far out in the backwoods that I had to hike up to the top of the hill next to the house that we were staying in so that I could make a phone call. And the connection was really, really poor. This is, I mean, we're, it's just in the middle of nowhere in, in Oklahoma. And, you know, that, that's not to say that that's the norm. But it does happen that you get in a place where your connection speed is just abysmal. Trying to use a snowboarding trail map app when I'm actually out on the mountain. And I have AT&T in Verizon country, you know. I've got one as well. In the summer, we, we were in uh, Lanzarote on holiday, so it's Spanish. And we ended up in hospital and we I had to try and use Google Translate on a sort of oh, equivalent wow. to about 2G and yeah. Could have really done with a bit of progressive enhancement on that day. Uh, it was it was dire. It was absolutely dire. And and because it was an, inside like a, a building like that as well, there's obviously a lot of demand on the connection. I think that's something that people forget as well is that if there's a lot of demand on the connection, then packets just get thrown away. So, you know, stuff was probably trying to come down the pipe, but it was failing. And yeah, it was it was an awful experience. And yeah, there's there's all these sort of like things that happen to people even people that generally have fast connections that you would just yeah. forget about yeah i've got another one for you aj when i used to work at um a high-tech security company that did a lot of government contract work they had a whitelist javascript firewall set up on their network oh, so uh, if it wasn't whitelisted it didn't show up and i can remember at the time even desktop sites it was the rage to have a hamburger icon for the menu no matter how much screen real estate you had and many of those sites were completely inaccessible to me unless I like hacked them open in developer tools to um, like literally see what the links were for the navigation menu. It would just be hidden behind this button that you could click as many times as you want and nothing would happen. I've got one more just to, uh, just to put the boot in. Uh, there's the, there's a, a pension thing called Nest in the UK that has just got one of those classic, you know, dated corporate front ends and every single anchor tag was a, a hash or a pound as you call it over there and because every single anchor tag had a javascript attached to it and because i was trying to use safari at the time it for some reason just didn't work so I, literally the entire app was inaccessible to me i couldn't couldn't even do the basics with it so yeah it's pretty pretty crap experience yeah if, if i could just summarize it feels like you know what if you're in town you you've got a decent cell carrier you know, most, I don't even know what the term is, first world countries, I guess. <laughs> you know, you're going to have a decent connection. It's not going to be a big deal. But, you know, if you are in a position where you think you might have users that are going to need your services and are going to be in those positions, then you really should give it a serious look. Is that is that fair? Yep. I think that's a pretty good conclusion. So I guess my next question then is, where do I start with progressive enhancement, Right. So let's say that I'm assuming that, you know what, they listen to podcasts in the middle of nowhere in such and such a country, and they're, they're going to need to access my app. Uh, How do we make devchat.tv better for them, huh, Andy? Yeah. All right. So there's something that I like to pick on is the, it's called, I call it the minimum viable experience. So it's like, what is the, so in the context of this, I'd say the minimum viable experience is the transcript for the podcast. So being able to read a transcript. So if you provide that by default as the HTML and then use the native audio element, 
with the you know an mp3 to the podcast itself so if the mp3 fails it fails gracefully because of the, you know the magic of html and then if it works we've got a native audio player and then you could use either web components or view or even react you know if you use that like, server-side rendering and actually create maybe like a, a more custom audio player that pulls off the already existing html5 element mm -hmm. and then create a more you know advanced experience you know you could do some time tracking you could do all the sort of fancy stuff that you can do with an audio player so that could be one one way of looking at it for yours so you go all the way from just providing transcripts all the way up to you know something pretty fancy with the javascript and css hmm so you mentioned server-side rendering with React and Vue. One thing I'm wondering about is can you do actual progressive enhancement with React and Vue on the front end? That, it's a lot easier with Vue, um, in my experience, because you don't necessarily need server-side rendering to um, do with Vue. So I'm doing it for a client now where there's a lot of Vue on the go, but I'm providing sort of baseline experiences using uh, name slots. So I'm passing content into those slots. And then if, if JavaScript fails, it's just all good. That content's going to render still. And then if, if the view sort of kicks in, then I can stick that content wherever I need to stick it. And you can do a similar thing with web components as well. Um, here's an example in like an article and uh, like a talk that I do where we've got a, a H2 and then some body content. And then if web components are supported and it's all kicks in, then it turns into one of those like toggle panels using the JavaScript and it uses the exact same content that's been piped in slots. So you don't have to write everything twice and you get the benefits. And then on React, server-side rendering, you know, if your React component will be turned into HTML. So if you can account for no actual front-end support with your, your actual components themselves, then yeah, you can absolutely do it with React and, you know, done it before and it's it is hard it's very difficult but it's very doable with with the right sort of effort in place gotcha so when i hear things like it's very hard but with the right amount of effort i can service my least profitable users i'm not super encouraged but i'm thinking there's probably a way to start developing progressively that's probably cheaper more convenient and easier for the person that's doing the developing. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that because I think I think the moral imperative is something we all shake our heads to, but when it saves us a buck and it makes things easier for us, that's when we take action on it. Absolutely, you know, and it's definitely the sort of thing that is much easier if you start that way. So, you know, in the context of React Component and minimum viable experience, if you actually, you know, enhance the component itself with, feature detection and you know various environment detections then it's totally doable but if you do it the opposite way around so you've got like a full-blown react app that's the only html elements a div you know and then you try and make it progressive after that all you're going to be doing is hacking at it so it's definitely something that's a, a better starting point rather than a finishing point it's so with accessibility as well you know um something else i'm really into is it's it's harder to fix the problem than do it do it with the mindset change to start with instead. Well, let me, Put it at the front of the the priority queue, as it were. Let me ask another question that I'm becoming fond of of asking. What are the situations where I shouldn't or wouldn't? It just wouldn't make sense to worry about progressive enhancements. Like let's let's rule out some things. Like where would I not want to employ this, or or it just wouldn't make that much sense. I'm struggling to find the context where it wouldn't be beneficial. But, you know, absolute best case, say you've you've got an internal application in an office that is only ever used by the same people in the same environment and the same connection every single day, then you might be able to make some pretty solid assumptions at that point and throw the kitchen sink at it. But if you publish something on the web and it's available to everyone in the world, then there's, there is no assumptions because you've got no idea what they're actually going to be attempting to visit your site with yep. well i'm just trying to trying to get some bounds of like where it might not make as much sense so that we can move towards like where it makes the most sense and there's the highest the highest return on on the time investment so you know because I, I believe people should do this and i want them to feel motivated of like where to start and that's kind of like for example i would think apps that are highly interactive probably don't make as much sense to be Progressive, something like a blog where 
the only thing that needs JavaScript is the comments and the hamburger menu. That makes a lot of sense to be progressive. In fact, I, I used a template for my blog and I found that there's like two JavaScript files in there that probably do nothing other than open and close the hamburger menu. And I bet that's the same for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think you're right. I think if this, you know, like I can imagine some sort of like analytics dashboard or something that is, is very much requires like highly interactive components. I think you can probably say at that point, then, you know, you're going to struggle to bring value with like a really strict progressive approach. But I think there's still like, even in that context, there's room for graceful degradation as it were. So, you know, in building up from the base still. And so if stuff does go wrong, it doesn't look like, you know, it's completely balked. It still sort of behaves itself. But, you know, like maybe to start with placeholder content, you know, those little skeleton elements. But yeah, I think that sort of context is fair enough. I think you've, you're going to need some heavy-duty JavaScript for those sort of front ends, for sure. Hey, Andy, can we get into the weeds a little bit? Maybe I was going to say, we're, we're 30 minutes in. Let's <laughs> let's talk actual code. Like, I'm, yeah! I'm curious. Woo! Yeah, code. <laughs> this, this is the direction I kind of wanted to go. You mentioned in your post that building this application that you talk about progressively, it says paved the way towards a simpler future and longer lifespan for the app. So I would love for you to kind of unpack what exactly you mean by that, because that is, you know, I always want to build my applications so that they're super accessible to people. But, you know, for me personally and selfishly, that is really, really, really intriguing to me because that's what I want. Yeah, cool. So what I was sort of alluding to that is we've all been in projects where the last 5% of the project right at the end, we all, you know, everyone dives in and starts just throwing everything at the project and throwing all sorts of questionable fix and fixes and hacks. So, you know, someone might report, oh, this, this slider doesn't work properly in, you know, Safari 8 or something. So they'll throw in some pretty questionable, you know, code to make it work. So what hey, the don't point I was getting... the way I use Stack Overflow. <laughs> don't do it. Exactly, yeah. Just copy, paste, and ship it. And so you get a lot of that going in. And then you, you'll get a flurry of to-dos thrown in there, comments that'll never get read ever again. Oh, whoops. And, I mean, that's what Chris does. <laughs> and the, so the point I was making with it there is yeah. that because you're not, you're not like backwards hacking to fix things because this should be working, you know, a part of the progressive enhancement or a part of the, you know, working from a minimum viable experience, it should work at some point or in some context, regardless of what people visit on. So you're not having to go back and make these, these really weird fixes. So then you haven't got that technical debt in your app when you ship. So that, in my opinion, gives it longer lifespan because you put in the, the effort long-term into new features, improving it rather than, oh, I need to un- unwire this awful bit of code that I added six months ago that I can't remember, you know, why I put it there or, you know, this this one comment here makes no sense. So that's what I was sort of alluding to is you're reducing the amount of that that goes into a project. Therefore, you sort of, you're giving yourself more time and resource to actually advance it and improve it long-term. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to make the analogy. This is a girl analogy that building my app progressively would be like, I can go to the store and I can pick out like a super trendy dress or I can just pick out like the basic black dress and wear some nice, you know, simple earrings. And it just is always in style and always matches with everything. And it's super keep super easy to, you know, maintain that. So, Amy, I'm offended that you think that I, as a man, can't appreciate a super trendy dress. I mean, I don't Uh-oh. know what is like the classic, you know, little black dress for a man, but sure. Whatever you're comfortable in. Yep, exactly. <laughs> my navy blue sports blazer. Okay, then perfect so analogy. On <laughs> okay, I'll stop. No, no, that is a that is a solid analogy, though. I don't, know, Andy. Like, what do you what do you think about that? Is that um? Yeah, I think that's fair. That I think that's a pretty good analogy for like the minimum viable experience. You know, a black dress is pretty straightforward. So it works and it will always work. But yeah, you could wear that fancy dress if you've if you've got access to it, you know. Where I think this falls apart a little bit, maybe though, Amy, Andy, is just um like one of the other things I kind of run into is resistance to things like progressive enhancement is this notion that it means that your experience has to be boring. 
you know, like if you're building a website that way, you're building something that's simple and ugly and not as feature rich as this other thing I could build instead. And I don't know, is that, is that accurate? Is that? No, I don't know. It's, uh, do you know what? You could have replaced the word progressive enhancement with accessibility then and it'd have been exactly the same as well. I think there's like, there's this like weird, um, theory that if you make things accessible or progressively enhanced then you have to take all of the fanciness out of it and all the nice design elements out of it but you know with modern css and modern javascript you know even taking frameworks away we've got so much access to really powerful tooling now baked right into the browser that you really you can have something super light super resilient that is really you know good good looking and really user friendly without pushing tons of dependencies at it that'll slow everything down. So now I think that's um, poppycock is so, the best way to describe that. <laughs> <laughs> we got some uh, Britification going on here in the poppycock. Hey, yeah, I went full British on you then. <laughs> yeah, I love it. My issue is, is that it seems like when we're talking about progressive enhancement, it's like, okay, so we've kind of got this uh, lowest or, or highest common factor, lowest common denominator, however you want to think about it you know, where some user at some level, you know, maybe they're on an underpowered device or on a slow network or something, they're going to be able to access it. And then you kind of layer some stuff on. So people with the kind of the next better connection or the next nicer phone or the next nicer computer are going to be able to access that. And I can tell you that I've built exactly zero apps <laughs> that way, right? Where I start at the bottom and work my way up. I always build the experience that I want and then, you know, somebody says progressive enhancement. And I'm like, huh, yeah, somebody with a crappy phone, I should make this work for them. But then I have no idea, right? And so should I just scrap it and start with the basic parts? Or is there a way for me to kind of tone it back step by step till I get to the point where they're going to be at? I think I think you could sort of analyze the context, you know, and, and, you know, start thinking how could I pair back the experience and what would it take to pair back? And then if it's sort of feasible for you to refactor at that point, then do it. Or if you can set like a set a timeline up, so you say, I've got this really complex component that at the moment is totally relying on every single fancy feature. So I'm going to give myself three months over the case of like various releases. And then I'm going to pair it right back to the bit the baseline and then if you work like that over time then a lot of your components or whatever parts of your app will suddenly start being a lot more accessible to people so you're talking about it like yeah so you just pair it back a piece at a time and i'm sitting here going how right like mm. what kinds of things can i do to pair this back because you know i've got a really nice setup that i've built in Vue or react or angular and you know what parts can i pair back what parts are going to be problematic for people? Do I just wait for people to scream? You know, <laughs> I, it just doesn't work on my phone. Help. Or yeah, are there guidelines that say, you know, look at these things first and then do these things. And then these are some other areas that you might run into trouble with. And then how do I test it to know that it works? This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Well, I mean, for me, it's, it, it's easier because like, I'm a designer by trade, so I'll, I'll take a, like, a whole view of the page or the view in question and, and start thinking about the user flows. It's like, what, what is the priority on this page? What does the user want to be doing at this point? What dependencies has the user got? So in an authenticated view, do you need that authentication at that point? Do you need this, that, and the other? work out what the actual true dependencies are, not what the desired dependencies are, and then progressively enhance those dependencies then 
progressively enhance that core experience. And then, and after that, you can either carry on refactoring or you can move on to another view that has that similar sort of flow on the go and keep working at it like that. So take a high level view of how all everything works together and then work out how you can make that work for the lowest possible tech scenario. And then, you know, you can work at that point as well if it's even feasible to, to refactor at that point as well. You know, you can see if it's going to be too much work, then do you scrap it at that point? You know, that's not going to be an option for a lot of places. So that's where the yeah, difficulty is. I guess my through. issue though is that I don't even know what the capabilities, like what capabilities the other browsers lacking in the first place, right? So I, I don't even look at it and go, oh, that browser is not going to be able to do this. Is there a list of those capabilities somewhere so that I can say, okay, I'm going to scale it back to this level of capability and then that level of capability and that way these users can use it this way and these users can use it that way. I think uh, caniuse.com is, is super handy for that. Yeah, it's really cool for, you know, you're going to know in your code base what, what the newer features are in your code base, or hopefully anyway, but you, you can sort of pick out the big things. So say like CSS, if you're laying out a grid, you can be like, okay, what's the, what is the support for this? And at the moment, I think it's about 80-odd percent, about 87%. So mm-hmm. you think, well, what do the other 13% have support for? And it's very likely they are support for Flexbox, so then you can pair it back. So you can have Flexbox by default and then use grid with that I'm at support, so just with the declarative nature of CSS. I, actually, um, yeah. I, I like that, the caniuse.com. That's a great resource just to say, yeah. I'm using this feature in the browser and yeah, 80% are going to be able to use it. I care about the other 20%. So what's the next thing? And you can so, use that browser stack then as well to, to actually simulate the experience for those, that browser as well. Yeah. I think about this a little bit differently maybe than you do, Andy. And Chuck, I don't know if this will actually help you or not, but I've stopped caring about whether or not a browser supports like newer CSS features at all. So I'm totally comfortable using grid or I, I used to use Flexbox as my example, but that's got pretty good support now, but let's take CSS grid. And if your browser doesn't support that, you're going to just get a single column layout instead of like a nice fancy, like I have no problem with that where I tend to get, I think a little bit more hung up on this is stuff like if JavaScript fails, can they still access the content and trying to figure out like, well, this works in this browser, but not in that one. And it works on this browser, but not on this device because Windows renders it differently than Mac OS. Like that's, that's madness and you'll go nuts. So I tend to think about this in terms of if they have no access to these browser APIs or JavaScript methods at all, what should they be able to do? Maybe the answer is nothing. Maybe it's, maybe it's something different. Like maybe there's some sort of like appropriate fallback. And then I end up, rather than testing kind of like browsers and things, I use um, what I think BBC coined the term, um, a cutting the mustard test. You know, if the browser supports this feature, this feature, and this feature, then we can bolt in all this other stuff. And I'll usually tie it to maybe like an ES release, ECMA script release or something like that. But this is like super easy to do with things like, I'm using the Twitter API to pull in a Twitter feed. And my fallback could be you just point them to your Twitter channel. It's a lot harder when you're talking about stuff like I'm rendering the content of the site in JavaScript. At that point, I have that with actually my courses platform. Like the whole thing is JS rendered, ironically, and I have no idea how I would handle that progressively otherwise. I mean, I think in that, you know, context there like people learning javascript if javascript didn't work in the browser they're, they're off to a bad start <laughs> yeah but, um, one, the one thing i did get from chris was basically you know again knowing your users and knowing you know what this is going to work for most of them and then and so i'm not going to worry about it and then if it becomes an issue then i can chase it down. i'm also a little bit of a hypocrite it just to build it any other way like to build it server generated markup instead of with js ended up being a lot harder. And as a one man shop, I just couldn't spare the time or extra engineering effort to make that happen right now. But that is part of what you said is true. Like if I had customers complaining about it, I would, um, I would certainly think about approaching it differently. Yeah. Well, and you're not going for mass appeal, right? With your course platform. Yeah. No, the fewer people who buy it, the better actually. Like, Oh yeah. Well, that's what I was trying to say, but (laughs) (laughs) but, but you know, you, you have web developers as your core audience. And so, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Although I'm getting more folks from developing areas and you know, who knows? 
I did know we really wanted to talk about web components. So oh, yes, we don't have the segue yet, but um, it's, I know it's one of the things we were all super excited to chat about. So nice segue, yeah. Chris. Let's talk about web components. Yeah. There, there was one thing I wanted to mention before we move on, if I can. Go ahead. Um, which is like, the, I think a lot of it's in the name, progressive, right? Like, so imagine, you know, you've got these one page sites and you got tabs and they can scroll and, and or, or they can like swap out one view for another to show you something. Like if you just built your page to be a single page, like literally a single page, and then once the JavaScript loads, then it only shows the first portion. And when you click on the thing, it swaps to the other portion. You have something that is progressively enhanced, like the base experience, you get all the content, but then you're adding more experience or inactivity on top of that that gets delivered after the content. I, I think that the Git platforms, you know, uh, Gitty, GitLab, GitHub, they're they're a good example of, of some of that type of stuff where like the content is king, the content comes first. And then you say, well, how can I appify this? How can I gamify it? How can I increase engagement with other people on it? Well, it's interesting right. that up because, you know, we do shows on React, Angular, and Vue, and all three of them have some concept of this, where it loads a server-rendered page, and then it pieces everything else in on top of it. And, yeah, and it captures absolutely. the events and queues everything up and then makes all the magic happen once it's done. I mean, the whole React lifecycle is progressive in itself as well. Mm -hmm. So, but the, I mean, like talking on web components, the that whole built-up experience you talk about is, is totally doable with them by the nature of the, them being custom elements. So they start their life as a HTML tag, essentially, that by default doesn't work. So it'll be a div by default, essentially. And then you pass some data straight into it from HTML. And then if the custom element supports there, then it'll consume that data and turn it into JavaScript data and we can start running with it whatever you want to do with it so you know you could turn like some image custom image elements that have got an image tag on the inside of it that is your is your default experience those those could all be turned into some sort of image gallery that's got lightbox or something you know with with the web component and because the web components don't require any framework to work they they are built in natively then it's a very high likelihood that if the user's on a browser that supports web components, they're going to work straight out the bat. So, and and you can use like Chris mentioned the feature detection, cutting the mustard. You can you can wrap the custom element declarations in a little feature detection block as well, just to protect yourself and to stop JavaScript actually breaking for users that don't support it. So, there's a lot of benefits to using them and. I think that web components get bad rap for being too complicated or too low level, but I think that's just a, a sort of symptom of the early days of web components and the old custom element API that was, you know, a bit wacky. So I think now with the, I think Firefox is shit with web component support now. I think, um, you know, you've, you've almost got a full spread of support. So you can definitely ship with them today. And if you're doing things progressively, then it's, Definitely won't be detrimental to the user. And they're really powerful, you know. They're super powerful. If you but they they, they are just very low level, so it's, it's a lot of work required, unfortunately. Well, I was just gonna add to that. So I haven't used web components myself, but I've read a lot about them and I feel like what you're saying. So I just want to like back up what you're saying is that I think they've evolved a lot and I think if people haven't looked at them in a while, then based on everything that I've been seeing, I think it's worth taking another look at them. So if someone hasn't looked at them at all, like I, I've heard of them, but I have no experience with them at all. Amy, I'm sure you've done a lot more kind of reading up on them than I have. So do you or Andy or both of you mind like, you know, just for someone who's listening and has absolutely no idea what these things are, like what, what the heck is a web component? As, as far as I understand, it's, it is a sort of native browser-based setup that gives you like a custom HTML element. It gives you like JavaScript uh, vanilla JavaScript APIs and it's self-contained so you can scope styles in there so if you if you put a style block inside the component using the shadow DOM which is another another alleyway to go down then you can have fully scoped 
everything, you know, JavaScript, HTML, CSS. So it's very handy for creating very, you know, component driven apps like we have gotten very accustomed to in the industry over the last few years. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a roundabout way of describing what they are. It's, it's difficult um, to mouth mouth describe a web component, really. I'm I'm a little embarrassed to state this, but the most recent show that we have on on JavaScript Jabber or any of our other shows for that matter is uh, an Adventures in Angular episode from two years ago on web components. So we're probably do. I'll see if we can get Rob Dodson back on to talk about that because he works on yeah. Google Polymer, at least he did, and mm-hmm. just solid stuff. But I'll put some links into the show notes for some of the episodes we've done on it. So I would say the same thing that you said, and I know in your article you said it feels a lot like working with you. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think if you if you're working with Vue now, you would probably pick up web components a lot easier than someone who hasn't worked with Vue because a lot of the concepts are very similar. And I, I touched on it earlier in the episode and I said like you can use named slots with both Vue and web components. Mm-hmm. So you can say you can wrap your content in a in an element or you can actually add an attribute to it and say if you know, add this to slot with the idea of this and so then your component can consume that content for you and that works with both view and uh, web components so if you work like that with view you could probably you know fire out a web component pretty quickly and it'd feel very familiar and the way that you pass data in with attributes you know like html attributes almost is it is a very similar workflow would either of you mind sharing maybe like an example of, is it literally like you're creating a custom element and then you can attach styles to that element the same way that say like the browser ships with default styles for like heading elements and things like that. So is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Like you might have a, um, like a literal slideshow element, for example, or like something yeah, of that nature? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you could have a, a slideshow element and so, and you could have like using those image examples earlier, you could, you could just pass a group of images in there and then if your slideshow element you know fires up then one of the first things you can do with the components that's rendering is you can pull those images with javascript you know query select mm-hmm. them and um re- remap them into the content you want them to be and you have to use a shadow down for that sort of stuff which is mm-hmm. a sort of like it's like an iframe but not awful is one way I describe it. <laughs> it's, um, it's you sort of you can reach in and reach out, which you can't do with an iframe for obvious reasons, and um, so you get that sort of uber control. So if you, for instance, if you pass in, if you've got global styles and you pass something into a slot, then that content will pick up the styles, uh, understandably. So it's sort of, the slots are sort of like a pointer to the content in a way, but if you actually render the content completely within the shadow dom nothing from the outside can affect it essentially especially the css so then you do get that uh, absolute control the web components are good for that so like so like a, a gradual design system change or something you can actually use the web components to create that sort of perfect scenario for yourself to actually style something exact without any outside influence whatsoever Ah, so this actually removes it, removes the object from the global scope. Essentially, yeah, and especially from a, a CSS perspective. And I'm pretty sure you can't reach into a web component to select its elements either. Hmm. So the root, so the root of the web component in the shadow DOM is the shadow root itself. So it's um, you, you just give yourself that sort of little friendly um, wall around everything uh, that gives you that level of control if you need it. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's cool. I mean, I, I don't know if it's interesting, but when I first started looking at web components, um, it was a talk that Monica, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the surname, um, Dina Klesku, I think, um, she did one for the Google Summit, and she they, they created this little PWA toolkit and some cool little helpers, like a 20-line router with JavaScript, you know, and all these cool little tools. I thought... You know, I'd, I'd not really thought about using web components, so I decided to learn them and started a little blog to do it, to journal, like, what my findings were. So I decided just to go for it without any sort of, like, reading around the subject. And it's like it's at webcomponents.club. And I think it's all, like, 10 articles at the moment, and basically I just, whatever I've learned, I just wrote some notes about it 
just to help either someone else who's going through the same thing or to help myself track back where I got to because it's something I've been doing on the side and um yeah that that could be a handy resource for someone and it was it was down to the stuff that the polymer team were doing that got me into actually looking at it and looking at it as you know foot to the metal vanilla approach now i hear polymer tossed around a lot in the context of web components is it required to work with them or is it kind of like a polyfill for non-native supporting browsers or what is like how does that fit into the puzzle here I think Polymer, like better described Polymer, it's like React or Vue. It's just a framework that, okay. that happens to use web components as its base. And, it, and it, yeah, it, it creates like a lot of polyphilesque um, stuff to help you get that wider support so you could write roll web components out to much less capable browsers. But it's, it's definitely not required to use web components. And I think, and I think the Polymer team, it, it does, you know, upset them too that they that have that like direct association with like a native web technology you know i think it's something they're trying to fix themselves as well like that that direct association yeah from from what i've played with uh, polymer does make web components easier but yeah it's not all that polymer does i mean the the frameworks are also trying to ship you know web, web components too like Vue and react especially so I'm, I'm i imagine angular probably does as well and it's, it's, yeah. that it's getting a better, much better rep in the industry now than previous years. Yeah, there's some crossover between the Polymer team and the Angular team at Google. It's not as close as an association as some of the others, other teams, but it does exist. Makes sense. And I can say that just because we've interviewed people from both teams and asked them about it. So, So is there any other approach or any other thing that we should talk about here before we get to picks? I think, we've, uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I think so too. If people want to learn more about this, where do they go? Yeah. Or hear from you more, where do they go? You know, like I said, there's Web Components Club. Um, that definitely get you off to a good start from like zero knowledge to some knowledge. Definitely check out like what the Polymer team do. I'll add some links to stuff that I found they create like baseline components for you and like i mentioned that router and some other little handy tools that will you know reduce the extreme low level that web components are by default so yeah i think that's the best place to start and then just keep working your way up and uh find me on twitter I'll put a link to the show notes there as well and then um, i'm more than happy to answer questions if if i can actually uh answer them i can certainly link you up to the right people yeah yeah, just put those links in the chat and we'll make sure they wind up in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we get to picks, I do want to shout out about one of our uh, sponsors. And uh, that is DevLifts. I don't know if any of you have used DevLifts. I signed up for their product. They actually have a fit start, which is $19 a month. And it's really great. It basically is tailored toward helping you reach a goal. So it could be uh, losing some weight or you want to do it with body weight exercises or running a marathon or things like that, right? They'll, they'll coach you through that for 19 bucks a month. Or you can get the premium. And, and, and this is a lot more on the level of what I kind of needed. You get personalized workouts. I got one. I told him I love to swim. I got a swimming workout. And then I went back to him and I said, hey guys, uh, the gym I signed up for doesn't have a pool. And so now they're working <laughs> up a running workout for me. I mean, it's, it's terrific stuff. It's done by developers. They know how to talk to you. They know where you're at. They know what your lifestyle looks like. It is awesome. So I'm just going to shout out about them. If you go sign up with the code DevChat, it'll give you $50 off your subscription, but you have to sign up before January 31st. So just check it out. There is a limited number of spots. So just keep that in mind as well. If you want to try them out, you got to try them out quick. And yeah, that's our sponsor there. And I know Amy's big on working out and things like that. So she'll probably tell you to go get active. active. And and this is a great way if you don't know how to start, try it. I mean, they help you with diet. They help you with everything. I actually, I I know the the DevLifts team too. They're really good guys and they know their stuff. They do. They also have a Slack channel and that's always nice. I go in there and ask. Yeah, they do. I'll be on the podcast next week. Awesome. Awesome. Nice. Yeah, I go in there and ask all my dumb questions and then they make me feel less dumb for asking and answer it. So, so yeah, just want to shout them out. Let's do some picks. Uh, Amy, do you have some picks for us? Oh man, call them me first. I do. 
I'm going to go with two. So the first one is something that was on Hacker News this morning, and it's just a website with tons of different programming quotes. And I found some on there that I hadn't seen before, so that was kind of cool. And then the other one I want to do is, this has been floating around a good bit. I don't know if I saw it on Twitter or Hacker News or what, but I have been interviewed. I can say this now because I have a job. I just can't announce where I'm going yet, but I'm sure people will know by the time this comes out. Uh, But I've been interviewing quite a bit over the past three months. And so I've been reading a lot about different companies, uh, you know, interview uh, procedures and different interview experiences. But this one uh, was just uh, somebody wrote, it's called uh, My Amazon Interview Horror Story. So I've talked to a few people at Amazon, like here and there. I have never wanted to relocate, so I didn't go very far with that. But I will say that the people I have talked to at Amazon have always been very nice, but it's still a good blog post, so I would check it out. And that's going to be it for me. Awesome. Yeah, I have a co-host on React Roundup that works for Amazon. He's a developer advocate. And, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. He's um, very nice. He's, he's super nice. Yep. Um, but the thing that's interesting about this kind of thing is that even the big companies, even if they screen and do the right things for the people they're pulling in, I mean, they just don't catch everybody. So you may have a horror story experience with a company that is generally good. But if they're interviewing you, they're probably going to be part of your life at that job. So do keep that in mind. Exactly. Like I had, I went through, so there's a um, big investment firm that's coming to Nashville and I had an offer from them, but the interview experience was so terrible that there was no way I wanted to take the offer. They, uh, in the interview, they're like, here's your next riddle. Here's the riddle after this one. Like just, I was like, really? Like, come on now, you know, (laughs) Like, like riddles, really? Please. Like I can understand, you know, wanting to talk to talk through problems and things like that, but don't use the word riddle. <laughs> that just paints a, you know, a bad picture to me. I'm not, I'm not here to answer riddles. <laughs> so, I don't know. Talking through technical things, you know, coding up technical things. That's cool. Whiteboarding, you know, even whatever. We'll, we can do that too, but you know, trick questions, stuff like that. I don't know. We should uh, pull together an episode on interviewing. Yeah, I really think we should actually. And I, I feel like um, I can talk a lot to this. And I know some people mm-hmm. also in the community that have been interviewing a bunch. So I could reach out to them if we want to. I, think it'd be I actually used to be an HR guy too. So <laughs> happy to join in on that chat. Yeah, yeah. And maybe by then I can talk about where I ended up and talk about their stuff. So awesome. Cool. Well, we're excited for you, Amy. Thank um, you. Chris, what are your picks? I have uh, I have three this week. Um, so the first is an article by um, some guy named AJ. He started blogging again. He wrote this. Uh, yeah, so our very own AJ wrote an article this week on, um, although I guess it'll be six weeks ago by the time this came out. Um, just a little JavaScript utility for um, converting how long ago something happened in like, a JavaScript timestamp into plain English. Um, but he really breaks it down into like super easy to read kind of sections. And I think the thing I liked best about it was that um, AJ is approaching this from the perspective of um, kind of creating some scaffolding that you can repurpose for your own stuff rather than trying to build this massive catch-all plugin that is all the things to all the people. Um, AJ, I think you summed it up best with your Rob Pike quote, a uh, little copying is better than a little dependency. I just really love that philosophy and kind of the whole ethos of the post. And uh, I hope you keep up writing because I really like where this went. Um, so that's my first. Um, the second is uh, I, I had deprecated, but then just recently re-released uh, an open source project called ebook boilerplate. So if you've been thinking about kind of publishing an ebook and you have no idea kind of where to get started with the publication process, this is a little tool that allows you to write your stuff in Markdown. And then with one little command line thing, convert it into a PDF, EPUB, Mobi, HTML files, and combine them all into a zip version that people can download and export if they want to. Um, totally free out on GitHub, GitHub rather. Um, and, and I use it for all of my stuff. So I thought you might find it useful too. Um, and then my last one, I just wanted to remind people, if you're ever interested in learning more about vanilla JavaScript, you can use the code JSJabber to get 30% off all my stuff over at gomakethings.com. 
Nice. That's it for me this week. Yeah, I've been using a system similar to what you talked about to write my book. What's yours called again? It uses Ruby, right? Yeah, it's called Softcover. That's Softcover. right. Softcover.io. Yeah. Which looked very good and very similar. So I don't think you can it's go It's very, wrong. very similar. So yeah. Um, you know, and you use a lot of the same dependencies and stuff. And nice. they, they, both, they both have kind of a similar setup process too. Yeah, Once, I kind of wish I had known about that. I only built my own because, you know. <laughs> yeah. Nice. But yeah, um, if you're familiar with Ruby, the Ruby community, Michael Hartle, who wrote the Ruby on Rails tutorial, um, he basically just published his tool chain. Yeah, that's nice. kind of how that went down. So anyway, AJ, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So first, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate that glowing review. Um, and, I mean, you don't deserve it, but you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness for your benevolence. So I got like 10 things, but they're all, I'm not sure I could keep them like a sentence each. So first of all, I, I like this, uh, this right to try bill. I hope that it doesn't get abused as a way for uh, pharmaceutical companies to, to push products on, on people that don't need them. But I mean, I definitely think that if, if people are, you know, at the end of their, their life and, and trying to find something that's going to work and yeah, you know, some people it'll make it worse. Some people will make it better, but I think it's good to have an experimental avenue to get, to, to get some drugs out there earlier so they can be, um, you know, tested and, 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 have that have that a little bit of that extra leeway with those people that are on the fringes anyway. Um, also, I'm going to pick. Uh, I don't know if Andy actually talked about this during the show, but he put it in the show notes. My browser. FYI, um, one. I think it's just cool that there's this little utility to uh, to do what it's supposed to do, which is show you information about your browser that you could then uh, share with tech support people. So it says what your OS is, what your browser version, if cookies are available, if JavaScript's on. Um, but what I really like about it is that it's it's just very well designed. It's high contrast. There's uh, depth differentiation. There's a good use of color. Um, the font sizes. There's maybe maybe too many font sizes on the page, but they they step in the right way. So it it just. Uh, I think I, I think it's very visually appealing. It's very clear what the buttons are, what what is clickable, but and and what isn't clickable. Um, so as as far as you know, brutalist, minimalist, progressive web design goes, I think this is a hallmark example of a functional but still pretty site. And then let's see. I guess I guess I'll because I'm blabbing on. I'll just save the other ones for next week. But except for this one, I I node now has RSA and EC key generation natively. So if you've been using libraries like Forge and Elliptic and Ursa and, or Mu RSA or however you want to pronounce it, some of the other ones, you probably still need them for many things, but you no longer need them for key generation. You can now get PIMs straight from Node and do a lot of the operations you need to do without bringing in external dependencies. And I'm super jazzed about that. And I, I, uh, I wrote some stuff up about it. If you're interested, I'll post it in the, the show notes. And then uh, I lied one more. There's an album called Arcade Attack. If you're into video game music, check it out. I'll link that in the show notes too. Nice. Yeah, the right to try legislation, mostly I'm, I'm of the camp of don't freaking tell me what to do, which is why I fight with my HOA. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's very much in the vein of that is my, my doctor saying it's hopeless. Let me try something. So anyway, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks myself. So uh, Chris talking about the authoring stuff, there is a uh, course on how to write a book that I took and it's been awesome. Um, I actually am about a chapter, chapter and a half out from my rough draft being done. I mean, there's still a lot to flesh out and things, but um, the initial draft was essentially here are all the core points, uh, you know, written out and uh, you can go buy it now at getacoderjob.com. But yeah, I'm, I'm really digging it. The, the course is self-publishing school. Um, and I will put a link in, I have a referral link. But I, I've been super happy with them. Um, I signed up for the VIP course, so I actually have a writing coach. It's it's just been really, really terrific. 
Um, they also have a Facebook group where you can go find a, an accountability partner. So I call this uh, guy from Pennsylvania every Thursday afternoon and he busts my rear end for uh, not following through on everything that I commit to, which is awesome. So yeah, and then they just have this whole program, just you know, writing the book, editing the book, getting an editor, uh, getting it published, how to do a launch, all that stuff's in there. So that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm, I'm super happy with that and I'm going to pick them. Um, I've also been listening to a podcast that I'm going to shout out about. Um, if somebody using the F word a lot bugs you, then this is probably not the show you want to listen to, but it's a business podcast. Um, it's by the CEO of a supplement company based out of St. Louis. The, the host is Andy Frizzella and uh, the show is MF CEO and MF stands for Emmer mother effing CEO. Um, but it, he just calls it straight out like he sees it and puts a lot of the, um, how do I put it? A lot of the responsibility for life back on the person living the life. So um, I, I think that's appropriate. Whether or not you feel like life is fair, it definitely um, is important to keep in mind that the biggest um, factor in where you went, end up is you and what you do and not what anybody else does or the circumstances you were born in or anything like that. And so just keep that in mind. Um, and yeah, I'll quit, uh, rambling on about stuff and I'll let Andy do some picks. Yeah, cool. Um, I've got a few, uh, first cheers, AJ. Thanks for, um, picking my browser. It's, it's definitely like the, the whole progressive enhancement thing was born out of that project, you know, the way I built it. So it's, um, it's good that you've highlighted that. Um, and if you, if you, if for those who are like interested, try and break it and try and, you know, disable JavaScript and run it in an old browser and just see how it behaves. Cause it's like, I really went to town on the, on the way it works, uh, on that front, but picks wise, um, I've got a, a couple of good ones. Um, I've, I've also been going through the process of, uh, looking for new roles and there's one company that's just started in the UK, um, I think they're going to start opening out of it as well, but it's called honest.work. Um, and they basically try and make the whole process of looking at job boards a lot more uh, transparent. So they encourage people to post what the salary is and they encourage them to post what the interview process is going to be and try and make everything as transparent as possible. And, uh, you know, they're a really good set of people that run it and, you should definitely go and look. And they're starting to get some really big companies um, on our Snapchat I've just advertised on there. And uh, so they're starting to get some big ones. So definitely worth keeping an eye on. Um, there's also another podcast um, that is based in the UK. Uh, it's one I was on as well. Um, it's called Relative Paths. And it's just, um, it started out as someone who was actually learning to be a web developer, being uh, essentially mentored on on the podcast and now it's just sort of developed into a very sort of casual chat about the web and there are a nice nice couple of dudes that run it and it's just a nice easy podcast to listen to they're, they're not they're not uh, ramming any ideals down your throat they're very sort of pragmatic about what they talk about so definitely give that a shot and then to finish it up i'll i'll pick one of my things if that's all right um because uh, it's something that i'm trying to do is is help people more on the web and i run this thing called devpal and basically what you do is you, you pop along to the site and you ask a question and you can ask about front-end development, the industry, design, whatever is on your mind and uh, try and get back to you and give you a sort of guidance or answers or push you into, you know, resources that I think are handy. You know, a lot of times people come and ask, like, how do I learn React? And oftentimes I'll just fire them off to um Where's boss's course? Um, but it's just it's just giving them that opportunity to ask a question. And you know, some people have really benefited from it. So it's something that I want to keep doing. So yeah, pop along. If you're ever stuck with front-end development or just want to ask questions about the industry, um, yeah, come and come and ask me and I'll see what I can do. And that's it. All right. Well, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh <sighs> Probably Twitter's best place to go. Um, I've got a really awful username on Twitter. It's, um, it's Hank Chisel Jaw, but uh, it's not spelt right. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, find it in the show notes and one day I might explain why. Uh, but it's, it's definitely very elusive. But um, yeah, come on there and um, 
I did like a brief hiatus software for a while, but I'm definitely back on it now. So, um, dude, your name is so easy to remember, Andy Bell. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> well, you could have had such a great Twitter name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I've always got my DMs up and there as well. So you know, you need to, to chat then just come along. Yeah, but that's probably <laughs> the best place cool. to start. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, Andy. Always. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, we will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.